0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading to Mapleton, Massachusetts, where adventurer Steve Banning, now old and gray, recounts his experience he and his partner Babe once had with the evil Egyptian mummy Karas after they discovered the tomb of Princess Ananka nearly 30 years ago. What he doesn't know is that Karas is alive and well and on his way to the United States with a new high priest of Karnak to avenge Ananka and eliminate the entire Banning family. Brew up some more of that good old tannity tea and join us as we discuss the mummy's tomb. To a new world of gods and monsters.
1: Listen to them.
0: Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy
1: to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am. (laughs)
0: You're
1: insane. I tell you, I killed a wolf,
0: a plain ordinary wolf.
1: By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how light evolved, how it adapted itself to this world.
0: He went for a little walk. He was in his face. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in Universal Studios' classic monster series. Today we're talking about the third Mummy film, 1942's The Mummy's Tomb. I'm the invisible Dan Colone, and joining me as always is my co-host, Monster Mike Manzi. How you doing, Mike?
1: I'm good, Dan. I think I just saw a shadow creep across my window. <laughs> Watch out for a newspaper montage. Oh
0: man, we get two of those, I think, right? Oh, correction three of those it ends the movie as
1: well oh jeez.
0: okay so the mummy's tomb it's sort of a strange kind of nasty sequel to the mummy's hand it was released only two years after its predecessor and it continues the story of steve and babe the archaeologists but for some reason it's set three decades later and it doesn't make any attempt at a futuristic setting, and it even references the ongoing world war that was happening in the world at the time. It has none of the comedy that made The Mummy's Hand such a fun, if flawed, Abbott and Costello-type horror comedy, and at 61 minutes, our shortest movie to date, it borrows an incredible amount of old footage, not just from The Mummy's Hand, but from Frankenstein. Now, as I was watching it, I was reminded of a line in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, filmmaking is not about the tiny details, it's about the big picture. Now, Mike, Are these tiny details enough to derail an otherwise enjoyable mummy sequel?
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe if it was a big picture, but, um, you know, it's a it's The Mummy 3. It's actually more like a sequel to the last one. So in a weird way, it's like a part two. It plays more like that for me in, in many ways. And even though it pulls the old sort of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 trick, which I'm not opposed to. We can, we'll get more into that when we discuss it. I still had a reasonable amount of fun with this movie. Like, I, w- I was very much caught off guard by several things. I was surprised by IT ideas not surprised they weren't fulfilled to my expectations that thing about 30 years in the future wow like that was crazy you know surprised they didn't take advantage of that more surprised about how serious they took this one surprised at the body count surprised at like a lot of stuff like i thought the mummy was going to be in the city he's in the suburbs like wild things are happening here tonight uh, on, on many levels but at 45 minutes of new footage is it a movie? It's hard to say. Technically, I suppose it'll it'll pass and it'll do. But yeah, it I was not what I was expecting at all.
0: Yeah, I think this is one of those things where conceptually, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff here. But at the same time, in practice, I find that on a second watch or a third watch, it's really not gonna hold up to any sort of scrutiny. The first time I was watching through, I was able to enjoy some of these different sequences. And, and you know, the cinematography I think is good. You know, through the second and third watches, the logic sort of crept in, and I thought, man, they're cramming in a lot of stuff into what I think is like five days, and tonally it is really nonsensical. A character dies, and the very next day, or or like two days later, his his son is like happily engaged. And and like the deaths don't seem to mean much to anybody except we need to figure out what's causing them, right? So there's really fun ideas here. There's some fun scenes, but as a film, and like you said, as like 45 minutes of new material, I think they're trying to do way too much within a short period of time. And like beyond that first watch, I think that it just falls lower and lower in my rankings. I think I rank it at the bottom. That's not to say I don't have fun watching it, but I think it's just not one of those movies. I don't know when I'm gonna revisit it. I don't see myself just picking this one off the shelf to watch. It's part of a franchise and I'll maybe only ever watch it as part of this like Karis trilogy.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too, because like even the Invisible Woman like made use of its time, you know, relatively well for what it's worth. And here it's astonishing about how much they packed into the 45 minutes of new footage and kind of hilarious how many opportunities they had to sort of space out all of that old footage throughout the movie if they wanted to. Like there's several yep. times like a character's like, Well here's what happened before. There is no need to kind of front load us with all of that. You're right. There's almost like too many ideas happening here at once. And they have the time. They just don't take it. Like they're in and out of this thing before you even know what happens. But just in the sense of like filmmaking and and, and then like on yeah. that side of the road, um, like it kinda has to be at the bottom. Because it doesn't really even do the conceit of using the old footage as well as it could have that that whole thing like it usually doesn't bother me but for some reason like as the movie was going on and like babe shows up and he's like let me tell you what happened i was like well now's the time to use the flashback footage like we've seen universal movies do it better and also just they're done trying to sort of make this a genre pick right like they're they're Mm -hmm, definitely mm -hmm. back to horror and they're like let's make mummy a horror movie and just kind of keep it in that framework so they took some chances and missed some chances and it just yeah it just kind of ended up like this
0: You mentioned we've seen other films where old footage is repurposed. We've even seen sequels that are like direct follow-ups with some of the same characters crossing over. I mean, um, Dracula's Daughter is an example of that, Bride of Frankenstein, obviously.
1: Invisible Man movies, What's like some of the best use of the lineage of the character. Yeah.
0: yeah, But I mean, like having like characters cross over like this and like, OK, so if you're watching this movie out of context, right, like you've never seen a mummy movie before, it might be tough to appreciate Steve and Babe as characters unless you're somebody who had seen the mummy's hand. They they really use these characters like as a shorthand to get you into this story. And I found myself like once they were done, once they were out of the movie, I didn't find the characters that were left over to be compelling enough to keep me interested in the story for the last, what, half hour of the movie. Right. You know, like they introduce these new characters. Steve has a son, he will have a fiance by the end of the movie. Steve has a sister that we're introduced to. His son's future mother-in-law is a character, you know, but, but, but I never felt like any of these characters were fleshed out enough to make the story interesting beyond Steve and Babe, right? Yeah. With Bride of Frankenstein and with Dracula's Daughter, yes, it helps if you've seen the movie beforehand, but those movies do a great job of introducing new characters that are compelling, and the stories themselves are pretty self-contained once you move past that sort of first couple minutes where they catch you up on what's happened. You can watch them out of context and still enjoy them. This one, I don't know that you can.
1: Yeah, they stand on their own to a certain regard. They have their own sort of merit, and like, I feel like this is a conversation I've had recently about Marvel movies, right? It's like, you know, how many are reliant on other films, on you seeing this or that? Like, can you just come in fresh to certain movies and will you be lost? And I could definitely see those problems in this production. You know, while I don't like the new characters, I like where they were going with the old characters. And I was just shocked that they... Killed him off, like, immediately. Like yes. That was mind-blowing. Like, that alone is sort of what kept me in. I was like, I can't believe this is, like, Steve Bannon recounting the story to his son, and then he's going to die. Then his sister's going to die. Then fucking babe is going to die. I'm like, uh-huh. what is happening? And, like, why do they have kind of, like, they have, like, the balls to do all that – but they can't work out like all the other cool stuff that they're doing, you know? And it yeah. was very frustrating on that level because I really wanted to be more into this because I felt like they were trying to get back to that spirit of like a shock or a, or an all kind of like almost just like horror for the sake of exploitation, you know, like a body count thing. Like we haven't really gotten a body count in a while, and I can't believe I'm like complaining about that. <laughs> But it just was cool to see the mummy, like, actually get revenge and all that kind of thing. And it was just disappointing to see sort of what was surrounding that. Like you say, the characters left over, their motivations, like, that whole thing about, like, sure, my dad and my aunt were just murdered, but let's get married. Yeah. It's all over the place. So that's a bit of an issue. Yeah, you're right. I like
0: how mean this movie is. Yes, the tonal shift to this from The Mummy's Hand is a little bit jarring. If you were to watch them back to back to to suddenly not have any real comedy, I could see that turning off some people. But I love that this movie is just about, okay, we're going to kill a bunch of people. And so I love that first half in in that they're really going for it in terms of shock value. It's like Hitchcockian, like with Psycho, you know, we're going to kill off the main characters halfway through the movie. But then they sort of drop the ball and, and the second half, they don't really know where they wanted to go with it.
1: They introduced that whole thing with the new high priest being enamored with Isabel and it becomes oh, I've called an audible to the mission and all this, and I really thought the mummy was going to turn against the new guy controlling him. And that that would have been a very interesting development, but they shy away from that as well.
0: Yes, considering that the high priest falling for a woman and using the mummy to achieve his own ends, that's not new. But it would have been a really great twist on that to have the mummy turn on him. And he almost does. There's a second in there where he commands Karas, and Karas, like, hesitates for a second. That would have been such a cool ending to have him die at the hands of his own mummy as opposed to the the end that he comes to, which is so much more predictable. We both sort of rank this very low in terms of uh, our overall Universal Monster rankings. I don't think that that is necessarily representative of how much fun we can have watching it, but I think if we're going to be here talking about it and dissecting it, it kind of has to go at the bottom because I think that more than anything else we've seen at this point it doesn't seem like they give much of a shit at all except to just make a mummy movie with their new star and not put a whole lot of effort and money into it
1: yeah it's strange i do get that kind of sense of a bit of a cash grab but then i'm wondering where all these other interesting ideas came from and why they would just waste them like like a sci-fi mummy movie would have been amazing you know but we've seen more sci-fi technology in the werewolf of london so that was confusing you know to say the least and then again i think my biggest kind of letdown was this mummy came to America I I thought for sure it was going to take place like maybe the week after the last movie and we'd be running around New York City and like to be kind of relegated to the suburbs of Massachusetts or something like that kind of took the wind out of it a little until I realized like it looks like my neighborhood so like that kind of brought a little bit of energy I guess back into the screening as I was watching it you know yeah, it's yeah. like oh well like yeah this is kind of interesting like it's kind of like Monster Squad now where like the mummy could be like just (laughs) shuffling down the street to the high school or something. So like you said, like, you know, we have to sort of recognize what this actually is, but like that doesn't stop us from liking it on, on, you know, certain levels or things just because it's not working overall. doesn't mean there isn't stuff here that we like, but if I am throughout this kind of like more harsh than usual, it's, you know, from a place of love, it's not intentional. It's not
0: anything like that. Although I really, Would love to have seen, like, The Mummy Takes Manhattan.
1: What a great title, too.
0: (laughs) You know, I I feel like that would make perfect sense, because big cities, big metropolitan areas tend to get these, like, traveling exhibits. They could do, like, an Egyptian exhibit, and the Princess Ananka and her casket are all in there, and then Karis comes in, and, like, there's a whole story wrapped around that. You know, like, that could have been awesome. But as it is, we get this sort of sleepy suburban town, which does have its merits. As you said, it reminds you of your hometown. So I think in that respect, it could have people thinking about their own home environments and all that so not without merit but I I would have loved to seen like an urban setting you know a mummy in a city but okay so let's get into the movie I don't really have a a ton of stuff I wasn't able to find a whole lot of like behind the scenes backstory here but I will go through the stuff that I did find so at this time basically Universal was still just continuing ahead with their fast and cheap thrillers starring their tried and true stable of monsters and after the success of the Wolfman and the Ghost of Frankenstein they were determined to make launch. Cheney Jr. a monster star like his father Lon Chaney Sr. and of course Boris Karloff. It was at this time they even dropped the junior in his name billing him simply as Lon Chaney much to his dismay. But unlike with Karloff, who came in during the Lamley era when studio heads were bending over backwards to make sure he got only the best projects, the current execs at Universal were pretty much throwing Chaney into anything that would bury him under a ton of makeup and prosthetics. And unsurprisingly, this led to a dip in the quality of his roles. One of the things that I wish was better about this movie is The Mummy. He kind of gets the Frankenstein monster treatment here, where he is just this big, brutish, hulking, silent thing that does the bidding of somebody who's more intelligent and evil behind the scenes. So he doesn't get a whole lot to do acting-wise. And I think, like, as we continue post-Wolfman, we know what Lon Chaney Jr. is capable of. I think we're going to feel a little bit disappointed that these are just the roles he keeps getting.
1: I was thinking watching this movie, well, first of all, if I think, like, one of the pros of him being the mummy is that I buy him being able to carry a girl, like, over his shoulder up a terrace outside of a house onto, like, the second floor. Like, I get, like, I, I believe his size and... And his power and he could choke a man with one hand but the more interesting role here is is the new high priest like it would have been awesome if he was that guy we know he's a good actor. Like, he can emote really well. He's got a very interesting face for that kind of stuff. And so, I don't know, maybe have him play both roles? Like, (laughs) they they don't need to do much trick photography to make that happen, but it was running through my head the whole movie. Like, wow, it's just too bad that, like, they felt like he needed to be the monster instead of, like, the human bad guy or something.
0: Right. Like I said, we know he's such a talented actor. Yeah, I think the High Priest would have been a great role for him, and a dual role would have been a lot of fun. From a marketing perspective, how do you not do that? And then bill it like Lon Chaney in a fantastic double role.
1: Yeah, yeah. And no one's done that to this point, right? Like no one's been Frankenstein and the monster. Not yet, but we're getting there. Or at least not at the same time. I don't think it ever
0: happens at the same time. But we will get to see one of those where like an, an actor and a, a character that he has played are in the same movie.
1: Yeah, but this isn't, we're not quite at the level of, you know, Eddie Murphy and coming to America. where it's no, like no, no, Eddie, no, It's like Lon Chaney as, and Lon Chaney as. Yeah.
0: I don't think any one actor plays two characters in, in anything we're going to watch, unfortunately.
1: That would have been a quick way to regain the mantle of Man of a Thousand Faces as if you started doing more than one in a single movie.
0: Yeah. But like Universal was just not interested in giving him good meaty acting roles. They just wanted to throw him in the monster makeup and call it a day. You know, then they could put Lon Chaney's name on the poster and people would, would, would all come see it. Okay, so we got Ben Pivar. He's back in the producer's chair after The Mummy's Hand. He comes back, of course, for The Mummy's Ghost. So we'll see his name in the credits again.
1: Oh man, The Mummy's Ghost, Frankenstein's Ghost. Are we going to get Dracula's Ghost?
0: (laughs) There's got to be like a universal monster, like title generator. And they're just like feeding keywords into that, right? So we're going to get The Mummy's Ghost coming up in a future episode. We've got Harold Young, a former editor who spent much of the 1930s working in England in the director's chair this time. He was most noteworthy for 1934's The Scarlet Pimpernel, but after that he returned to Hollywood and his career at that point was pretty much just made up of forgettable B-movies and The Mummy's Tomb is most likely his most memorable credit as, you know, as a director.
1: His most memorable, forgettable B-movie.
0: Our screenplay, written by Griffin J. and Henry Suture, based on an original story by Neil P. Varnick. Previously, Griffin J. had contributed to the screenplay for The Mummy's Hand, and both he and Suture will team up later for The Mummy's Ghost. So they kind of keep these teams together, I guess, under their respective brands,
1: right? Yeah, I was just thinking about that, too. They have like their Mummy team, their Invisible Man team.
0: Yeah, that's what it's feeling like, as opposed to having, you know, like John Balderston contribute to every screenplay in the 30s. Now now they have like a mummy team, they're going to have an Invisible Man team, but may- maybe. We'll see, we'll see. Production began on June 1st, 1942, and it wrapped up a few short weeks later. I think by mid-June they were done. They had only 45 minutes of new material to shoot, so couldn't have taken that, that long.
1: It probably took longer to find like the old footage in the vault.
0: Despite its low budget and its general lack of sophistication, Universal really played up. Blonde Chaney. So they were pushing this one really hard, and they released it on October 23rd, 1942, as the main attraction in a double bill with Ford Beebe's Night Monster, starring Bela Lugosi and Lionel Atwill.
1: Oh, man. I want to see that movie.
0: Yeah. You know, I saw that they released it with Night Monster, and I'm like, huh. I never heard of Night Monster. Let me look it up. And like Bella Lugosi and Lionel Atwill are both in it. And Ford Beebe, the director, he's going to be showing up again. He directed The Invisible Man's Revenge. So it's like one of those sister films that like now I just really want to check out.
1: What's cool about Universal during this era is that they did horror that didn't stir the, the classic monsters. So there's all those movies we can get to someday if we never want to end the show. And like, I'm looking forward <laughs> to that too. Like, let's just stay in this era forever or like loop all the way back around and do something like that
0: yeah i think there's something to that i know that we're skipping a bunch just to, to stay focused on the monsters but i do feel this pull to check out this stuff in between
1: i even want to watch like one of those sherlock holmes movies like at least the first one or something <laughs> hell yeah like i feel like the hounds of baskervilles yeah like i feel like that it could sort of belong here sure so
0: let's get into the cast real quick of course lon chaney jr is replacing tom tyler as the mummy Caras. and Dick Ferran returning as Steve
1: Banning. Okay, that that's crazy. Can we just stop right there? (laughs) Because this is my biggest question about the cast: Are Steve and Babe the same Steve and Babe? Because it's thirty years later, it's old age makeup. um, They don't look the same. They could have recast them. I'm shocked that they didn't recast them I'm, sh- I'm like kind of amazed it's the same people because especially Babe is an entirely different performance like I would never yes. have guessed he's basically playing like the Monopoly man this time around instead of yeah. like some kind of practical joker it was crazy
0: I saw Wallace Ford's name in the credits like I knew that he and Dick Ferran were both brought back to play these characters again and I gotta say all things considered I thought the old age makeup was great yeah like that's one of the things I do like about this movie I think they aged them up in a decent way you know like I really bought that they were 30 years older, or at least if they wanted to present them as old men, sure. Because I think in the 30s, how old would they have been? Maybe like 50, 60 years old. Maybe they went a little bit too far by today's standards. But I buy that they're older versions of these characters. But you're right. Babe is almost entirely different in his presentation. There's no jokes. He's He's got like those like armless glasses, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like
1: he's kind of got the Ben Franklin look too, I guess.
0: Something. Yeah, again, this is one of the things I think I do like about this movie.
1: Yeah, I think it was also really smart to have a woman actor playing Steve's sister who was of the actual age. Like, she's not yes. in old age makeup. Like, that's that lady is actually seems to be that age. And that really helped sell the makeup, you know? I was yeah. like, oh, okay. like Because I knew it was old age makeup on the guy playing Steve. I just didn't think they would bring Dick Foreman back just for this part. So I knew it was makeup. Didn't know who was under it. But having... This actress there really helped sell all of that yeah and that is
0: mary gordon who played steve's sister jane she was a scottish actress who mostly made a career out of playing housekeepers and mothers that sort of thing we have seen her before though i didn't recognize her when i saw her but she was the wife of hans in the bride of frankenstein
1: oh in the very beginning in the very beginning yes <laughs> that the frankenstein monster drags into the well yes yep <laughs> No, poor lady. She's been killed in two Universal Monster movies. Spoiler, but, like, she gets murdered in this one. Yeah.
0: I know we're, like, watching these, like, almost, like, 90 years in the future. But, man, if I could say that I was killed by two Universal Monsters, that would be, like, a high-water mark for my life.
1: Yeah, that's also, like the bill paxton thing he's been killed by like an alien a predator and terminator so he's got the trifecta i think lance hedrickson has the trifecta too so she's
0: she's up there i'm curious to see if she pops up again because if she could get three
1: then she'd she'd enter that hall of fame that'd be great she needs to get like mauled by the werewolf
0: okay so uh george zucco another returning member of the cast he was ando heb in the mummy's hand he is magically still alive after he was shot to death by babe in the previous film and and he is now like the eldest high priest of Karnak. You know, these are dying breed. There's only really one elder. And, and I think he's lucky to have a young man to pass the torch to.
1: Surprised he's back as well, you know, like under a lot of heavy old age makeup. Yes. And also like sort of deformed looking, I guess, because of his age. I, I don't know. But like, I again, like I would not have expected that it was actually the same actor under this, that he came back for this five minutes.
0: Yeah, I knew that it was him. You know, I saw his name in the credits, and I'm like, okay, cool, that's George Zucko. But I, I will say that I think his old age makeup is the worst of the bunch. Could be that he was already old.
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But you know what tricked me about the cast is all the old footage because he was in the yeah. last movie. So like you don't know what they're referring to necessarily in the credits when you see his name come up and then you see the old footage and you're like, oh, well, that was that. Um, And then this new, maybe this new guy's playing this old character again. But no, like it's crazy how they made a point to bring everyone back for this. Like, yeah. why are you doing that if you're only going to produce what you'd made? You know what I'm saying? Like, it just yeah. seems like a lot for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> In a weird way
0: Right And it comes back To what we were saying before Like I think it's brilliant To kill everybody off Like right away Mm -hmm. But like They just don't have What they need To like carry this thing across the finish line in a way that feels great yeah i
1: mean they even kill off characters before the movie starts like marta's gone yeah. her father's yep. gone it's like they're just gonna get lip service and that's that
0: so we've got in the best role of the movie probably we have egyptian actor turin bay as mehemet Bey. he's the, like the new young priest of karnak now i really was interested in finding out more about this actor he was of egyptian descent and he was born in Vienna in 1922. He was apparently pretty well off because his mother's family owned large glass factories and supposedly a film studio in in Czechoslovakia, and his father was the Turkish military attache in Austria. As a young man, he arrived in Hollywood with his mother and grandmother and a letter of introduction from a lawyer friend of filmmaker Arthur Lubin. When he arrived in Hollywood, he attended the Ben Bard School of Speech where he perfected his English, and before long he debuted in the 1941 Warner Brothers film Footsteps in the Dark with Errol Flynn. He took minor roles after that for a while before getting his big break as Catherine Hepburn's husband in the 1944 MGM film Dragon Seed. And by the end of the 40s, he was released by Universal, more or less dismissed as another camp actor, and he appeared in a few more B-movies, including The Amazing Mr. X in 1948, before he ended up as a freelance photographer for soft porn magazines. Oh, no. He supposedly never saw The Mummy's Tomb, but he has been quoted uh, as saying that it was his favorite role. He said, quote, I guess it's my favorite because it was a part closest to my own nationality. It was a young Egyptian who believed in something which we couldn't comprehend in our five senses. If I could have picked my roles, I would have played these kinds of heavies—people who have a mental quirk or who, for some reason or another, are acting against the positive side of the plot of the picture. So, yeah, it looks like he enjoyed playing bad guys, and uh, he has particularly enjoyed playing an Egyptian character. Yeah, I don't know. We were talking about like how it have been great if Lon Chaney had played that role, I and mean, it would have been. But I do love that they cast an actual egyptian actor to play this egyptian character
1: yeah good point and also i think this guy does an amazing job in this role too like i don't mean to take anything away from his performance by suggesting lon chaney should have played it but it just seems like this is that's i mean like that's what i mean like this is the role It's a great villain because he's not really a villain in a lot of ways. Like, not until he does that turn to kidnap the woman. It's like, up until then, it's kind of like this righteous mission where it's like, yeah, they desecrated this holy land this tomb and stuff and mm-hmm. it's right and it's like we're just gonna go get them. So really interesting like motivation for this guy starting off. I always did enjoy the relationships that the high priests had with the mummy and how they're kind of like caretaker but also like dominator like there's this very complex dynamic going on between, mm-hmm. between the actual Chorus and this guy and he just looks great on screen like very interesting commanding and just stands apart from everybody else so my eye is always drawn to him and I'm always like kind of looking for him and waiting for him to show up so yeah I thought he did a great job I thought this was maybe the one new character that I enjoyed the most
0: yeah I think he's really only failed by the screenplay I think if maybe Kurt Siodmak had gotten a pass at this
1: yeah because he does sell that stuff like even though I don't really like where he goes it's very convincing because even in the beginning when he sees her he's like lead me not into temptation and you know what he means but he doesn't say like i can't fall for this woman you know he can't really say that out loud but by the end like it makes sense you know because they set it up and i don't necessarily have to like it but he sold it and that's what mattered
0: yeah, yeah, I don't think the fault is with him. Any shortcomings, I think, are squarely on the, the screenwriters here. As much as this character could be better, Turin Bay makes the most of what he's got, and I do come away from it thinking, like, this is the memorable character for me. Hands down. We've got John Hubbard as Steve's son, John, as our sort of milk toast hero of the movie.
1: Hero, question mark.
0: <laughs> yeah, Hubbard was meant to be a typical Hollywood leading man, apparently. Uh, a few years prior, he starred alongside carol landis in the hal roach film turnabout which was meant to like help his career but it ended up hurting him because he came across as effeminate according to actor robert clark who starred in a tv production of the three musketeers with hubbard he said quote, john pointed to a sizable dressing room there on the roach lot and said quote that was built for me and now there he was back on that very lot doing this little tv thing for 55 dollars a day end quote eventually john found it necessary to look elsewhere for some income and took a job as a maitre d at a hollywood restaurant called the tale of the cock before ending up as a dialogue director so like i could see how this guy could be on the path towards like handsome leading man but this one movie just totally just derailed all of that and like ruined his career which sucks <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's too bad. I mean, I felt like he was serviceable here. I mean, he's not doing anything new, right? Like, I feel like I've seen this guy a thousand times.
0: Yeah, he fits into that mold, which the 40s were Full of. I think the 30s sort of invented that sort of a role, and then by the 40s Hollywood just had so many. It was like an embarrassment of riches. They had a, a whole stable of leading men, and they didn't have enough work for all of them, you know? So they throw this guy into a mummy movie, because, you know, oh, he'll do, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think the issue uh, and the big
1: issue is, like, there's a lot of handsome actors, right? But how yep. many of them can actually act? You know, yep. not everybody's Cary Grant, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> you know? And he's got the looks. He felt very heroic like there he does the best stunt in the movie if it's actually him but his character gets that great stunt at the end oh i saw that yep goes down a flight of flaming stairs so he he came across like completely fine to me so it's too bad for this guy
0: and lastly we have elise knox as john's fiance isabel i couldn't find a whole lot about her that was particularly noteworthy, aside from the fact that she was the wife of Heisman Award winner Tom Harmon and the mother of Mark Harmon, for those
1: NCIS fans out there. What? This is Mark Harmon's mom? Yes. That's terrific trivia. Holy moly. (laughs) So Mark Harmon's
0: mom is playing Isabel Evans in The Mummy's Tomb. Like, she seems... Perfectly fine in this role. It's just again the script I think fails her more than anything. We've got a, a mm-hmm. what, what appears to be a female character who could have some like real independence and agency, and she certainly plays it as much like that as she can. But really, at the end of the day, she is there to be you know John's fiance, and uh, she's there for the,
1: the the happy ending.
0: And so it's unfortunate they don't give her more to do here because I do think she's great in the little bit they give her.
1: Yeah, I feel like we talk about this a lot um, at this point yeah, because oh, we've recorded. Sure a lot of episodes now but like we hate the love triangle just for the sake of it or any kind of that thing just to throw it in there and this definitely felt like that and it's like if they were engaged before the movie started I could have worked with it like you know but it just it was so clunky and like so out of left field and like I didn't get any of that and so yeah that did bother me that they just relegated her to a fiance and be the kidnapped princess kind of thing Uh, and her like one role is when we see her try on a Vera West dress. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm not complaining about the dress. It's unfortunate that she kind of has to like recreate a scene from the Invisible Woman like in the middle of this movie you know by trying on her dress in front of us and all that kind of thing and so I'm just with you in saying that she could have been used way better.
0: So you mentioned Vera West. I feel like that's a good time to mention, not a paid sponsor, but I feel like fans of the show will really get a lot out of this. The current issue of Fangoria Magazine, issue number 14, it's the, uh, the Scream cover. There is a great article on Vera West in there. So fans of the show, if you're not already subscribed to Fangoria, definitely pick up this issue
1: because it'll be worthwhile just
0: for that article. Have you had a chance to read that,
1: Mike? No, I haven't. I was actually looking for that issue out and about, but I couldn't find one. So you know, the hunt continues. But um, yeah. I I'm, was I'm really—it was really cool when you sent me that message because you know that's just something we had been talking about through these movies, and to so see it recognized like today in Fangoria and giving like that recognition is really cool to see that it's like that legacy continues. So we were we were big fans before the article, I guess, but like even bigger fans now.
0: I feel like if there's one unsung female hero of the Universal Monster Universe at this point, it's Vera West and the beautiful costumes that she's produced for these films. I don't think people talk about her as much as they should. So I'm grateful to the show for really drawing my attention to her work as much as it has. You know, like I've, I've sort of treated these movies in the past as a sort of disposable entertainment, but now that we're watching it more on a microscopic level, I'm, I'm noticing all kinds of things, and uh, I do think Vera West deserves. Serves much more attention than she's gotten in past years. So definitely check out that issue of Fangoria. The article is great.
1: I have to go back and check. But was was she working on the Invisible Woman? And and perhaps was that why? I think she was right. And I think could, could that be why part of that movie was kind of like parading dresses around? Like maybe those were all Vera West dresses, and like they were just showing what she was capable of. Like it makes me wonder now. I gotta have to go back and, and double check on that. But I mean, you know the sequence I'm I'm referring to, right? The one yes. that we kind of bashed as like, oh man, it sucks that this is her job that like she just has to like be a living mannequin for these people. Was that the studio being like, check out these Vera West dresses? It very well could have been cuz Vera
0: West did design the costumes for The Invisible Woman. And just because I feel like maybe the wrong message is coming out right now, but, like, I don't think that our issue was the gowns themselves. It was No, yeah. It was the story and that this is the direction they decided to take it. So, yeah, our issue... I'll speak for myself here. My issue was not with the with the dresses, but uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think that was your issue either, Mike.
1: No, yeah, it was much more in the way that the character was being used. You know. Yes. I just had a problem with the social mores of the time that the film was made. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play well today.
0: Just so we're clear our issue was not Vera West. I think everything she's done has been amazing.
1: Now I'm gonna go back, like, I never thought I'd ever go back and watch anything from that movie again, but, like, I want to go check out those gowns. Like, she's very inspiring. Like, I really dig it. A Couple
0: more crew members I want to mention before we get right into it. Of course, we have Jack Pierce on board here for the mummy makeup. He added a charred look, consistent with the mummy's fate at the end of, of the mummy's hand. He's got a blackened mask, uh, just a singular eye slit and a burned stump of a hand. I, t- I mean, I know at this point, Pierce was trying to make the makeup application as like easy as possible. So I think Chaney's probably wearing a mask here. He's not having like makeup applied to his face painstakingly the way Boris Karloff was. And I'm pretty sure that his body is like in a, like a suit of some kind. I don't think he was being wrapped individually like Karloff. But all things considered, I think the makeup job looks good. I like the continuity and Pierce's work is helped by the cinematography of George Robinson, especially because of how much he bathes everything in shadow. I think he's maybe the MVP of this movie behind Jack Pierce. In terms of production value, I think the cinematography here is some of the best we've seen in a little while. You know, I know we've seen kind of flat cinematography for the past couple movies, and I'm happy to see some actual artistry at play here with some of these nighttime sequences
1: yeah yeah i totally agree with like everything that doesn't take place on just like your average suburban street which again doesn't look bad but i think what really stands out is the stuff in the cemetery and the mausoleum like it's kind of like they build an interesting contrast between their set pieces where you have like this completely bland suburb and then you have this really interesting graveyard to cut back and forth between so i noticed that too i was like wow they're they're trying like some some of them are trying you know (laughs) and like some people are really bringing their A-game to this is just like, I wish everybody really wanted to be here. You know, we've
0: talked about the previous Mummy movies and how the location added production value. You know, obviously they didn't go to Egypt to shoot these movies, but they used, you know, Egyptian architecture and things to to make the movie feel bigger than it was. And that added to the beauty of those productions. Here they're in suburban white neighborhood in Massachusetts. And I think that George Robinson does a great job of making a pretty vanilla location look more exciting and more interesting the cemetery is obviously going to be easy to sell and then that what do you call it like the office of the caretaker that's got some egyptian flair to it because of our high priest so i think that stuff would have been easier but like in terms of making like the house creepy and the neighborhood kind of scary and, and ominous that's all george robinson man he turned a, a suburban neighborhood into something that does look pretty creepy i think
1: i was getting shades of two movies one of them was Rumblefish by coppola sure yeah um because he kind of brings a very haunting appeal to that black and white look of his idea of like he's looking at suburbia as well and stuff and so like i mean i think of black and white houses like sometimes i think of that movie and the other one is like nightmare on elm street kind of stuff sure you know? yeah <laughs> yep or halloween even because when you see the mummy just kind of like doing a shortcut through someone's backyard it's jarring like yep. you shouldn't be there. Like, he's out of time and space. And there's something you can't quite put your finger on, but it doesn't feel very good. Like, you're not, you know, it's eerie. I kind of got the same feeling when they put his sarcophagus in the mausoleum, because you're like, wow, these are two very contrasting ideas of the afterlife and death and culturally very clashing. And I'm getting a very weird feeling here for some reason like Mm -hmm, something's not mm -hmm. fitting quite right on any of this and so like i don't feel like that might have been intentional but just like watching so much modern horror like those things came to mind definitely when i saw the mummy just kind of trotting down the street yeah i could definitely see that All right, we got editing
0: by Milton Carruth, who I I just wanted to mention because he also edited Dracula, The Mummy, and Dracula's Daughter. His contribution here, you know, not necessarily the most noteworthy, but we got a veteran editor. Well,
1: spinning newspaper montages can't be easy to cut together, and he did three, so
0: and we've got a score by Hans J. Salter we've mentioned him on the show before his score here is mostly recycled music some of which came from The Invisible Woman just thought that was worth mentioning yeah I,
1: I recognized some of those cues for sure
0: yeah some of them felt out of place you know not obviously not his decision but some of it seemed a little happy considering all the murder and mayhem surrounding characters <laughs> alright last fun fact of the movie before we actually get into it that banning home I don't know if that looks familiar to you at all some film buffs may recognize it it was the shelby house that was originally built on the back lot of universal for uncle tom's cabin in 1927 it was later reused in man-made monster and son of dracula as well as the spider woman strikes back and the brute man wow so we'll see it in son
1: of dracula
0: yep we sure will one of the things i thought was cool about this house is that it was specifically constructed so that it could be set on fire
1: oh a stunt house
0: Yes, it had concealed gas jets along the railings and whatnot. So like, if you watch these movies, I think in Son of Dracula, they set it on fire, so we'll have to watch for that. You know, you watch the movies where this house is used, and if it's set on fire, I wonder if there's some visual continuity, like, oh, the fire's in the same places. You know, like, I would love to watch some of these movies back to back just just for the house.
1: That's so smart. What an insane idea. Like, what a marvelous time to be making movies
0: All right. Well, I think that's a good time to get into the movie. I don't want to just skip 15 minutes in, but we'll kind of roughly get through this this first 15 minutes. Of course, we open with that Superman style fanfare. For those of us watching at home, we're still we still have that opening. I've been tracking this. I can't wait for that to change i'm not sure when it's going to happen i'm letting it be a surprise for me
1: yeah they definitely sticking with this one the longest and then
0: the first thing we see at that point is universal presents lon chaney in the mummy's tomb in like big giant stylized letters so like i said they're really selling lon chaney here as this new monster star in the mold of his father and and boris karloff which you know just imagine living in that shadow The movie opens with Steve Banning and that sort of like, was it a book or it feels like a magazine article? Oh, that
1: is so weird, right? Like it starts on on that magazine and it zooms into the picture and the picture becomes real. Like it starts moving and then we're in the movie. Like that was odd. So I think it's a magazine and there's an article about
0: Steve Banning and like his whole story about his trip to Egypt. And the story we're about to hear over the next like 10 minutes or so, uh, we've got old man Steve surrounded by his son, uh, his son's girlfriend, soon to be fiance, her mother and his sister. And just like telling the story, the old story about the time he went to Egypt and like dug up the princess Anonka's sarcophagus
1: we see everything from the last movie from when he meets the magician Silvani and his daughter and they go on the expedition. Like I couldn't believe we saw that much of the last movie.
0: I mean, obviously they only had 10 minutes, so they didn't show us the whole movie, but it felt like we saw
1: more of the movie than we did. That's for sure. We saw at least half the movie. <laughs> and like, what was crazy is at one point, so like he'll start telling the story and then they'll show the flashback. And then they'll show like a minute or two or three and he'll start talking and they'll cut back to the modern day for like a second just so that they could cut back to different footage a little later in the last movie. And it just like at one point I was like, are they even going to cut back to this old man? Or are they just going to run the rest of the movie, <laughs> and finish the reel off and then go back to him?
0: If you want to watch our Mummy's Hand episode, uh, that will get into all of the little details of the, that story. But just to catch us up with the movie here, the story is is that Steve Banning and his partner Babe traveled to Egypt 30 years ago in search of Princess Ananka, and they discovered the mummy Karas, who was under the control of uh, the high priest of Karnak, that played by George Zucco, who we see at the beginning of this movie. Karas was sort of a defense system for Princess Ananka's tomb, and anybody who would defile the the tomb would be killed by Karas. By the end of the story, you know, of course, they defeat the mummy and Steve and Babe return to the United States with Marta and Silvani. And so now we are caught up, right? Essentially. Oh, they do go through the whole kind of rule system where the high priests of Karnak can bring Karas back to life with this, like, fluid that's brewed with Tana leaves. Three leaves will keep him alive and nine leaves will give him motivation is what, uh, is what Andoheb says. And so we kind of get all of the rules set up, and that's kind of it for Steve Banning telling his story, right? Am I am I forgetting
1: anything? No, I think you got everything. Was this something that his son had heard before and, you know, like, I can't just remember if, like, it says they believe him. Like, it kind of feels like they don't believe him. They know, of course, he was a famous archaeologist, he brought back the princess, but, like, it seems like maybe this might be one of the first times he's Telling someone this story. And if that's the case, like it kind of gives it a little more merit, this scene. You know, it's sort of a little yeah. better than just everyone sitting around talking about a flashback again. It's not like I heard John go, Oh, dad, you in that crazy story again. Like from what I remember, I don't feel like it's that kind of mood. So that's kind of interesting.
0: I was going to say, it does seem like the sort of story that his son would have heard a lot in 30 years. It's a little bit unclear if he's ever told this story before. Why is it 30 years later? I still can't figure that part out. You know, like, I feel like if Andoheb has been alive this whole time, why has he waited 30 years to take vengeance on the Banning family?
1: That's a whole other debate. I don't even know the answer to that. We could tackle that in the next scene, perhaps. But the only other thing I really have to say about this opening is that, well, I mentioned earlier they could have doled this out throughout the movie, you know, because a lot of characters are kind of, well, not a lot, but at least Babe is going to, start telling the story once or twice and they're going to fade out, fade away to another scene. Uh, But I'm not necessarily opposed to doing something like this. Like if you watch the second Planet of the Apes movie, they basically remake like the first part of the first movie with different actors and characters to get people up to speed. And so there is just like a better way to do it. Like it's not that I hate this idea, you know, it just bothersome how kind of lazy they executed it
0: yeah like i mean for those of us who have seen the previous movie it sort of grinds to a halt before it gets out of the gate we're seeing a bunch of stuff that we already
1: know yeah and there's no reason they couldn't just start this in the next scene or something and stretch out like some of these ideas
0: i think you're right i think it would have worked better if they had maybe started with the high priests of karnak like oh shit george zucco's character is still alive Andoheb is still with us and he's gonna like take vengeance okay cool and then we go to massachusetts right and then just from a structure point of view i think that would have worked way better but as it is it really just kind of slows down the beginning of this movie we're like it takes us 15 minutes just to get into this brand new story that we're trying to enjoy
1: and it it is just a little silly i know they're not trying to make it silly but they just keep cutting back to him to to steve bannon like telling the story in a chair surrounded and it's just like not exciting like there's nothing exciting about any of that kind of thing either you know it's not like he's even lit cool and standing over a fire or reading it from a diary Um, so
0: (laughs) yeah he's just chilling in his chair smoking a pipe so okay we after about 10 minutes of steve banning telling the story we do get to check in on the high priest of karnak and oheb is still alive he reveals that the bullets that were fired into him previously only quote crushed his arm. But he is too old to do anything about this now, so he is passing the torch to a younger High Priest of Karnak. And he will take the mummy of Karis to the United States and essentially kill the entire Banning family for tampering with the tomb of Princess Ananka.
1: So this is like a really nice, very neat little scene. It, It lays everything out very well. It didn't feel too exposition heavy i kind of love this idea even back then they were like hey man you never saw the body so you don't know for sure he was dead it's not like babe went down there and like checked his pulse right so like sure you just shot him in the arm like i kind of love that and he's just in like biding his time or waiting for the next generation to come along i do wish that The idea of is of course he's still alive, you know, you've been feeding him Tana juice for 3,000 years, like, you just burn him up, it'll stop him for a while, but, like, he's coming back. There was never a doubt in my mind, like, he would be back. I do wish there was a little more sort of charred, burned thing going on with him. I like what they did do, but they just, like, fire becomes such a major kind of component in this movie it, it just would have been like maybe that extra step that they're missing, doing like a two-faced thing with him where like half of his whole body is like charred and the other half isn't or something.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have been opposed to that. I think that Jack Pierce definitely had room to to keep going with that sort of look. But I mean, this scene, again, sort of reiterates the rules of, you know, three leaves to keep Karras alive. He has to kind of give him the, the fluid nightly by the cycle of the full moon. And then nine leaves will wake him up. You know, to activate him, you know, so to speak. And we also establish here that the Temple of Karnak has apparently arranged for this young man to take over as the caretaker of a cemetery in Mapleton this is a very elaborate conspiracy, right? Like
1: <laughs> that's got shades of Dracula to it. Right. Where it's yeah. like, it's Carfax Abbey ish kind of. Um, and yeah, I also love how the cult of Karnak is like this worldwide kind of underground <laughs> operation. And they mentioned the curse of Amun-Ra. That was a nice callback. Yeah. And just this whole idea of the curse of desecration on the Banning family and everything. is just like, you know, they stole the Royal tomb. Like, yeah.
0: So it's funny that you mentioned Dracula because I noticed this movie has shades of multiple universal monsters in it. The trip by boat across the Atlantic Ocean, definitely shades of Dracula. The full moon imagery and the howling wolf several times through this movie made me think Wolfman. And then certainly the, the climax of the movie makes me think Frankenstein. So it's like they were just drawing little pieces from the things that they knew worked And then worked them into this screenplay, you know, like not the least bit elegant, right? Like it's all just sort of crammed in. But I think it's, I think that was probably the thinking with all of this stuff, just kind of like subliminally throw this stuff in because they know people like this stuff and maybe it'll make the movie better and maybe it doesn't.
1: I don't know. I mean, that's very clever of you to like kind of point all that out. And I mean, I caught some of that and definitely I saw the wolf howling at the full moon and I felt like something was up, but like I was in mummy mode. You know, like, the Dracula stuff crossed my mind for sure, and, like, you know, we do get actual footage from a Frankenstein movie at some point, so that came into my head. But, yeah, I think you might definitely be on to something there where they're, like, either from time restraints or just someone being kind of really swift-witted is just, like, yeah, like, what worked in each of those best... And it's a bit of a testament to the Mummy Monster to be able to kind of contain all of that within the narrative, in in, in its narrative, like in the in the storyline of the actual creature itself. I'm not talking about what's happening in the rest of this movie, but just the fact that like you can combine all of these elements and they work for the Mummy Monster. For me, like is, is pretty interesting. It
0: just feels to me like a bunch of executives sat in a room and they're like, you know what we need? Have them travel by ship. That that worked in Dracula. We got to have some torches and pitchforks because that Frankenstein, people love that too. So we got to like really just put that in there.
1: That footage was right next to the old mummy footage in the vault. So we got to work this in somehow. (laughs) And, you know, we've talked about how that has been a good thing at some point. But this is definitely the horse and camel situation. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. The creature is the film itself. Like it is a Frankenstein monster of a movie. Yeah, these things on individually are not
0: bad ideas. What turns me off is this idea of taking everything and throwing it in there. Kind of like thinking that that's what's going to
1: make this movie uh, appealing. Yeah, especially since like everything at this point has sort of spaced itself out to belong to certain monsters right like it feels like dracula has its rules and imagery and the wolfman is all set in its way and like everything you know what i mean like everything kind of feels like fully formed in in many ways at this point now so like why not trust in what they've already created for the mummy lore and all of that imagery and push that as opposed to bringing in stuff from other things they liked or things that proved to work i mean i understand why they did that but it's just like another opportunity you know yeah
0: so once Karas and Mehmet Bey have arrived in the United States. They're all set up at the cemetery. I love this scene between Bay and the former caretaker, I suppose is who that is. Just points out that being a caretaker is a lonely existence. Why would you want to do this? You're such a young man. And this is one of my favorite scenes with this character. He just kind of tells him like that he wanted to be close to the people that meant a lot to him in life and, you know, like I don't know how he explains himself through this scene, but it works.
1: Yeah, I just got the sense that he was like obsessed with death. It just- just makes him comfortable. He's like the mummy caretaker. So like the other corpses, like, yeah, they don't bother me kind of thing. I'm just going to set up shop here. I I like how long we kind of stick with this guy too. You know, the sequence like kind of goes on for a bit. So that was nice as well. We get to see him set up shop. Yes. So
0: I mentioned Ed Wood before. It's not very important, but there's a scene... Like right in here, where Mohemet Bey is walking from, I guess the caretaker's house to what will become Karis's holding cell, whatever whatever that building is.
1: He turns like a crypt into an office.
0: <laughs> yes. In that sequence, like he walks across a cemetery, and as he walks through the door, there are these tombstones that are in the foreground of the shot and they're waving in the wind.
1: Oh, fantastic.
0: It's very subtle, but I was like, oh shit, those tombstones are waving in the breeze. That that's pretty funny so i
1: made a note i am fucking convinced that if ed wood was working during this time like he'd be a megastar like he would be like a you know like he would do universal movies because it was kind of what he was trying to do in his time but he was just like a little too late things got too sophisticated but this would have been great if it was directed by ed wood i mean the use of stock footage alone makes me think of him
0: Oh, for sure. So, Mehmet Bey is now down to brass tacks, right? Like, he's making the potent Tana Brew with the Nine Leaves, and we're getting our first victim tonight.
1: Yeah, first mission immediately.
0: He wastes no time. We're not even 20 minutes into this movie, and he's resurrecting Karas to go after Steve Banning.
1: Love it. Love it that he's not wasting time. Like, we've wasted enough time already. Like, I'm yeah. just it's great that, like, it's on.
0: And What might be Lon Chaney's best acting in this movie is when he is first resurrected. There's that shot that follows his left hand up to the side of the sarcophagus. It's very expressive. It's very Bela Lugosi in Dracula, the way it moves slowly up and wraps around the side of the sarcophagus.
1: Love that shot. I only had one sort of problem with this whole mission thing, okay, is like he doesn't necessarily know how many people he needs to kill yet. So I understand being like, just go after Steve Bannon and today just go after steve tonight but like i feel like he could have taken out more than one person the rest of the nights like the second night should have just been like a slaughter
0: we'll get there in a bit does he only get one kill like one use per night
1: that's what i was wondering that's how it feels where it's like you can't waste your kills you got one per night you know if the full moon's gone like you're screwed you gotta wait a month or whatever it could also be that
0: you know because he is not In the presence of the mummy, like the mummy's not smart, right? It's just going to do what it's going to do. And I think if he tried to kill two, three, four, five people in one night, somebody would eventually intervene, right? So I think maybe doing one per night keeps the risk low.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to get this out of the way early so I don't get into the weeds later. But I think you're right because you don't want to, like... When you team up against this thing, no problem, right? Like, so the mummy does not want to to be teamed up against. Like, he needs a one-on-one situation is what I'm now realizing.
0: And I also feel like if the movie wasn't set over the course of, like, five days, he could stretch this out over months or years just so as to not draw suspicion. But because this movie is just made on the cheap, they're just like, okay, one night we're doing this guy, and then the next night we're doing that person. It's all kind of smooshed together in a way that doesn't make the most sense. But I could easily see this like kind of one at a time every couple months, killing the next person. But you start with Steve Banning because he's the worst offender, and then Babe comes to town, you take him out. And then over time, you take out the Banning family. You play the long game, you're gonna be more successful. I think it's because they rush that they don't fully succeed.
1: Yeah. Well, one interesting idea they had that somewhat plays out well is this idea of building the suspense of like other people seeing the mummy. Like in the very next scene, the mummy's going to go looking for his victim and like he goes past like Lover's Lane and like this Uh couple making out thinks they see the mummy. This couple is woken up because something's outside their house and like they think they see something. So the movie uses that. I guess to sort of justify like the multiple day thing as well. And in that regard, that's, that's pretty good writing, I guess, you know, if it's like we got to fill up this time and make there be a reason for there to be a multiple day situation going on and becomes a media frenzy basically.
0: So now Karras is on his way to kill Steve Banning. As you mentioned, he is sort of kind of seen by two groups of people. They don't get a good look at him, but he does cast a shadow across them. That will come into play later. As the mummy Karras approaches the Banning house, he sets off the dogs, which is like an inadvertent distraction. While Steve goes up to bed, his son is like checking on the dogs.
1: So not to interrupt, but you skipped over one of my favorite things about this movie, which... Maybe it was a modern thing, but, like, they're sitting there and they're playing checkers. Oh, yeah. Like, they're playing checkers. Like, they're not even playing chess. Like, I think that tells you a little bit about, like, the sophistication, too, like, on a level, like, subconsciously
0: yeah and Steve and his son John are playing checkers and I think it's like 11 o'clock time for bed Steve's sister says like you should have been in bed an hour ago like she's his mom which I thought was really funny
1: and it's weird how they have like a compound like the Frankensteins like he's got a whole kennel of dogs and stuff like what's up with that well I would assume that like after bringing
0: home the princess Ananka that he you know made a lot of money off of that discovery so in light of that I'm surprised his house isn't bigger to be quite honest but you're right he does have a nice size house and a kennel of dogs on his property. But yeah, I love that they're sitting there playing checkers before heading to bed.
1: I mean, I guess they, they couldn't be watching television yet, you know? So, I mean, what else What else the hell are you going to do? Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell stories and play checkers. And his son, who's a doctor, is like the world's worst checkers player. While the dogs are barking, the mummy climbs the side of the house and uh, up onto the second floor. And Steve Banning connects eyes with the mummy he hasn't seen in 30 years. And, like, it's kind of embarrassing how easy he goes down, if I'm being honest. I know he's an older man, he's 30 years older, but he kind of goes down like a punk.
1: Dan, I gotta tell you something. If you think he was in shock, you should have seen my face. Like, (laughs) I couldn't... Like, and this is a good thing about the movie, I couldn't believe that they were gonna kill him immediately like this. Like, the mummy climbs up his window into his fucking room and yeah. strangles him to death immediately. And Steve is like, it's Chorus. I can't believe it. I was like, whoa, I can't believe he's down. I couldn't believe he was out. I was like, okay, movie, you're working your way back from that opening sequence of stock footage. Like, you're really working your way back for me here. Like, good, good move, I felt.
0: Like I said, I think the choice to kill Steve early is a perfectly good one. I actually really like that. But just the way he goes is just, I don't know. I kind of wanted a little bit more of a fight from him.
1: I hear you but you got to remember this is Lon Chaney, right? Like this true, guy true. in my mind was like he's mad, he's like a wookiee almost, right? Like he's massive. <laughs> like that's what I was thinking. I was like you just can't get around this thing either way and now Steve is like 80 or whatever and he's in shock. I mean, we're going to have a the groundskeeper is just going to have like a heart attack from seeing this thing later, you know? Like I even though it's supposed to be the 70s, I'm sure they still haven't seen stuff like this.
0: So now Karis returns home and Mohammed Bey tells him only three remain before they can return home to Egypt. So I'm thinking like he says three remain. I'm trying to figure out who he's referring to. I guess if we're killing the line of Bannings, we've got John, we've got Jane. And do you think he intends to kill Isabel or is that third person? It would have to be Babe, right?
1: Babe's not in town. Dave just happens to come in town after the fact. It's not necessarily clear to me, per se, who he knows is, like, around. Like, maybe he thinks the magician is still alive and his daughter. Like, maybe that's two of the four in his mind. I don't know. It's hard to say, but, like, if I had to wager a guess, it's these four people we see here the most. Like, I would say John, his aunt, his dad, and then Isabel, because when her and John get married, they're going to have more banning. So, like, you got to right. sever that. You got to kill that noise. And that's why he ends up kidnapping her later and everything so like when we get to the scene i don't think he knows babe is like coming to town or any of that that's just a very fortuitous moment for the high priest right like he just sees babe babe is blabbing his mouth off and he's like oh cool babe's here i can get him now too all right i can buy that
0: so john discovers that his father has been killed and so we cut to like csi the mummy where we are introduced to a character who is really only referred to i think as a professor but he is effectively like the forensic scientist in this movie he knows everything there is to know he knows an impossible amount about mummies and different kinds of dust and compounds as we will learn but they take the dust that was on steve banning's like neck for some sort of evaluation the sheriff and the coroner both believe that it's just dust and, and that there's really nothing to it. It's a waste of time. But John's not so sure. So, like, the logic behind this entire scene, I don't really get it. Why John would insist on going to, like, a forensic scientist to analyze
1: it. But here we are. Well, also, there's more to this dirt, too. It becomes, like, mummy mold uh, later on when it's identified and stuff. But you're right. Like, it is a little weird, I guess. But I guess, you know, he had just heard this story about a killer mummy, and now his dad was murdered suspiciously, and there's, like, this weird residue. Like, I could understand him wanting to kind of, like, dig a little deeper or what have you and, like, not really trust what this guy has to say yet possibly
0: we'll see the very next scene those witnesses that we referred to come into play the sheriff is entertaining both groups of people neither group has anything substantial to say just that they saw a shadow pass by or they saw something past the window when they looked out the window it was just a shape in black um because of the moonlight they couldn't they couldn't get a good look as far as the sheriff's department's concerned they're chasing a shadow which i think is what the uh the sheriff does say
1: i had a quick question and this like really just popped into my mind because you know even if it's not intentional there's always sort of this subconscious thing with the writing and the writers and what's happening at the time and everything. And we sort of ran into this a little bit in the last episode when the invisible agent was sent to get these plans from the Nazis. And the plans were that they were like sleeper agents in America already. And they right. were going to like do missions and bomb places and stuff. It's like having the idea of, it's almost like night of the living dead, right? Where it's like the neighbors are suspicious of each other. It's like, they've got this weird twilight zone aspect to it of like the dangers of not knowing your neighbors in the suburbs or something like that. And it's like, Oh, we saw something out the window, it could be the mummy, but it's probably just like your neighbor taking out the trash or something. And it's just like, in me bred like this idea of suspicion or hysteria that kind of came along with propaganda and wartime and other times and prevails in horror cinema like to this day and stuff so i i don't know that if that was something that they were intending but just thinking about it now i mean it came to mind so i had to mention it
0: now see that that would have been an interesting direction to go but instead they're just like
1: witchcraft in new england you're so right they totally just pass it off as like we're in massachusetts it must be witches and stuff it's like yeah oh man yeah they totally write that off it's fun to think about where this movie could have gone and how we could have made
0: it better yeah that's half the fun for me right now anyway Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but yes i do like that observation and i'm sure that they weren't thinking about that at all when they were writing that scene and and make and shooting it and everything you know see that's another interesting idea that would have been fun to expand upon but instead we go right to this scene like the day after his father has died john is sort of taken away from his desk where he's like trying to figure out who could have killed his father to go spend time with the woman he loves. His aunt Jane sends him out and that's where we get this really awkward like it's like it's like nobody just died, right?
1: Yeah, they're going on a picnic.
0: I think just from a narrative perspective, this scene really just serves to give Mehmet Bey like an introductory
1: point to Isabel. He's like lurking in the bushes like a creeper. Dude is lurking everywhere. This whole movie is like the he's like the invisible man because like the, <laughs> the scene will like for real like the scene will end and the camera will sort of like pan over and he'll have been standing there the whole time. He, he's like Drax, right? Like you can't see him if he's not moving. It's crazy. Right, right,
0: right. The only reason for this scene to exist is so that he can see her for the first time, and now he is like maybe tempted to leave his path, right? As this this like agent of vengeance.
1: Maybe. He even, he has this whole thing where he's like, give me the strength to resist temptation.
0: Yeah. And he's like looking right at her.
1: (laughs) At about halfway through the 29 minute mark, we get the first mention of Babe. I could not believe that this character was going to show back up after this. I mean, they killed off Steve. Why would they bring in Babe? I thought the idea was to like wipe the slate clean, but we're not done doing that yet
0: not yet. And so Babe has heard the news about Steve in a, like within 24 hours and has decided to take a train to town and John has made arrangements to go meet him at the at the train station. And now we're on night 2. There's another wolf howling, of course. I think it feels like almost every night they have that shot of the of the dog howling at the moon. And so Mehmet Bey resurrects Karas once again to head back to the Banning house to kill his next victim.
1: And I think that the next scene is old Babe getting picked up from wherever he came from the train station.
0: Yeah, it's it's not clear if it's a train station or a bus stop. I'm not totally sure. I would assume it's probably train. And this is where we get this brand new Babe who's got
1: the glasses and the hat. You're right. He he does kind of look like the guy the Monopoly, dude, right? Yeah, he's a total aristocrat now. Like I couldn't believe this is the same character, which is why I couldn't believe it was the same actor. But like great job, Wallace Ford. You fooled me. You, you fooled me good. But this isn't the first time someone in these Universal movies fooled me good either, because, uh, you know, there's been actors who have been in several of these films playing drastically different roles as we've been watching them and stuff. So like, I don't know why I was so surprised. Like, I'm a little bit bummed
0: that the comedy is gone. Like, he's kind of playing a different version of himself. But as I'm thinking about it, like, maybe whatever money they got from bringing Ananka back from Egypt, he took that, invested it really well, and has just been, like, enjoying being part of the rich man's club. And so maybe maybe that changed who he was fundamentally in some way.
1: He like learned manners. I mean, that that experience must have changed him like fundamentally, right? From the last movie, like from the from the inside out, completely. And we don't know anything about any of his time since the last movie so like he could have had kids and a wife and all this kind of stuff and like lost the fortune gained a fortune all this you know and he feels like such a different character but like what i like about that is that feels real you know because like some people yeah. do change that much in real life and it's kind of rare to get an opportunity to express that in a movie like this where like the last time we saw him as a young man and he was one way and now he's an older man uh and he's like completely different person and it's like very It's almost like, you know, the new season of Cobra Kai where you see Terry Silver and you're just like, how could he have changed so drastically? And like, how is he going to go back to being a bad guy again? And it's just like, well, you know, it's been a lifetime. Um, So I kind of like that.
0: And this is one of those instances where the 30-year time jump does work for me. If they had tried to do something similar and have it be set maybe a year or two after the, the last movie, Babe would still be kind of in comedy mode. And that sort of a transition would be harder to make this sort of leap, like this character transition makes sense if it was that that close together. But 30 years, that gives Babe plenty of time to change and evolve and mature as a, as a character. So as much as that 30-year difference doesn't make make sense to me this is one of those moments where i do think that it's to the benefit of something you know and in this case it's
1: babe which is insane that it would be like this character maybe like the guy i like the most in the last movie I was like man he's like he's too funny Or what have you but like ends up being Like the one guy that actually They explore that whole premise with Right this is like the only element of the whole Movie that explores like the 30 years Later idea aside from Aside from Steve having a son But like there's nothing else there
0: yeah, and, and he turns Babe into a character that I really like in this story. I think this is a better use of this character than in the previous one, where he was basically uh, a low rent Lou Costello. Right. He has legitimate purpose here, and I think if they had pursued that, where you know he's telling the story, you know at this point of the movie, you know kind of recap what happened last time, that would have been great. But as it stands, he is the sort of emotional crux of this movie. I never would have imagined that Babe from The Mummy's Hand would have amounted to this. But like, I really enjoy Amir.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing.
0: (laughs) And so John is sort of catching him up with what happened with Steve. And the second he mentions the gray dust on his neck, Babe has this realization we don't get to see what's next because the movie cuts back to the banning house and we're back at the kennel that we saw previously and the caretaker there he's the next guy to witness this mummy walking through suburban massachusetts he fires off a couple rounds into it before passing out due to shock
1: he unloads on the mummy like he's got a shotgun and he's just blasting away and then he has like a heart attack or something but i think Later, they just say he's like in shock and he won't come out of shock.
0: And hearing those shots, Jane comes out of the house and
1: right into the mummy's grasp. Couldn't believe they killed the sweet old lady. I should have known better because, you know, it was, you know, she died in Bride of Frankenstein. Not that this actress died, but like, like they're not above murdering, you know, kind old women. And I should have, <laughs> should have remembered that
0: so now night two we've got two bannings dead babe is in town the next scene we learn that this like groundskeeper is in such a state of shock that he can't even speak and then we get that first news headline montage mysterious killer strikes again jane banning second victim witchcraft revived in new england question mark second fiend murder at mapleton mass and then a news clipping that mentions that Jim, a helper at the Banning home, was the only witness to the last Mapleton murder and is now in a hospital completely paralyzed and suffering from severe mental shock and will probably die without divulging the reason for his condition.
1: And then we see the reporters flocking to town and there's like every extra on the lot was called in this day and given a hat and a trench coat. <laughs>
0: So many people. The final headline, ace newsmen of country here to cover, in quotes, mystery. Town plays host to crime specialists. And I'm thinking on the third day, two people are dead and suddenly a wave of reporters have descended upon Mapleton, Massachusetts. You're right. It's like every actor they've ever had who's played a newsman in a movie has been put in this in the scene. There's so many guys crowding up this like local tavern, I guess.
1: It was such a quick shot, too, and I mean, you know, I guess I can understand, like, with the war going on and everything, local news or or at least, like, I don't know, stuff going on in the country at the time, like, this might have been, you know, a big distraction. Like, it could have been, like, a kid falling down the well in the 80s or something.
0: The one guy even mentions, there's one of those reporters, he says it was either this or covering the Russian front, making references to World War II.
1: Yeah, in the 70s. Still going on that World War II.
0: So now Babe is back at the Banning home and... Okay, so this is where he brings up the story of the mummy from 30 years ago. and And John's like, yeah, I've heard that story. And Babe's like, look... It's true. All of it. And that's what's happening right now.
1: He <laughs> does his best on Solo. It's true. The Force, Luke, everything. But this, this is like where you go into some of that flashback. Like you do some of it in the opening, but you fill in some of the blanks here. You know, you could be like, your father probably never told you this part, you know, or whatever. Yeah.
0: Right. But Babe's here to basically say that's what's going on. They could keep a mummy alive for 3,000 years. They could certainly figure out how to come over here and and, and get vengeance. But he insists that the dust that was on Steve's neck was was mold from the mummy. Yeah, mummy mold. That's the new hashtag, mummy mold. And he warns John the curse is going to follow the Banning family. Somehow he knows, he suspects that no Banning is safe as long as this mummy walks around outside.
1: Yeah, it leads me to believe that off screen the last 30 years, this guy's had a lot of sleepless nights. It almost feels like he knew one day this was coming, whereas, like, Steve just, you know, to him, it's just like a story he tells his kid at night or whatever. But, like, babe doesn't see the humor in the world and after that, right? Like <laughs> Yeah. It like scared him straight.
0: And yeah, and and when John kind of doesn't take him seriously, he he gets right up and he decides, "All right, I'm going to go talk to somebody else who hopefully will believe me." And so he goes straight over to the sheriff's office where he he tells the sheriff and the coroner the exact same stuff. It's a 3000-year-old mummy brought back to life, the the gray dust was was mold from the mummy, so on and so forth, but nobody Nobody believes Babe and kind of at a loss, he decides he's going to go grab a drink at the
1: local bar. Yeah, but you know what those cops did believe? They were like, babe, it's witchcraft. It's clearly witchcraft. (laughs) And it's like, like, what movie are you watching? Right,
0: yeah. So the town's talking about witchcraft. He can't go out there and say that there's a
1: 3,000-year-old mummy shambling around. But it's like, that's, you know, what's the difference, man? Like, they're already saying witchcraft. Just be like, no, 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 like mummy. Just sort of shift your hysteria, you know, a couple degrees.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. So Babe heads to the local bar, and at this point, he's just going to to you know drink smoke a cigar and then tell anybody who will listen to him about the mummy
1: i love this scene dan because it like reminds me of was it don't look up did leonardo dicaprio movie where sure. like, the, the asteroid's coming and no one believes him babe is just gonna leak it to the press I'm like all right authorities don't believe me i'm just gonna go get hammered until i have like enough in me to tell you know this reporter everything
0: and unwittingly lets uh mehemet bay know that he's in town
1: because this guy shows up again dude the camera just like pans over and there he is
0: right place right time right so now he knows babe is in town he knows babe is telling everybody about this mummy and we can't have that so when the sheriff decides to uh follow up on a lead some people some of the reporters from that bar notice him leave his office and immediately like they all just sort of block his direction right he's off to find something or chase something down they're going to be there to report on it
1: oh right right yeah he kind of like bursts into the diner and is like hey everybody like they think they saw something right and like everyone rushes out to go check what it is except for babe
0: Right. And then as Babe heads back out to the street, there is Karras, comes around the corner, and he has the, pretty much the same moment that, that Steve had, that sort of, oh, it's you, you know? And, and in one of the more impressive shot scenes of the movie, Karras kills Babe. And not for nothing, Babe puts up a pretty solid fight. I was actually pretty okay with this scene.
1: Yeah, yeah, I like this. I thought this was interesting how it kind of spills into that alleyway and he runs down and it becomes like one of those classic moments where he runs down the alley and there's a fence and he's like either too old or the fence is too high and he can't get over it but then he like tries to fight back the best he can but is just totally overpowered he's just too old at this point you know like he's not the same babe you know that was eating hot dogs in Brooklyn or Coney Island or whatever (laughs) in the first movie so yeah I I like this I, I liked how the mob goes off in one direction he goes off in the other, and he runs into the mummy. And yeah. again, just like, Babe shows up to get murdered. Crazy. You know, five minutes later, he's dead. I couldn't believe it. I was like, for sure he's going to stick around to the end.
0: Yeah, we see his name at the 29-minute mark. By the 39-minute mark, he is declared dead. But he makes the most of that 10 minutes. I think he do- I think he makes the most of that 10 minutes. So then we get our next newsreel montage. Let's read through these headlines real quick. Killer Fiend loose again. Another member of Banning Party slain. Murder attributed to supernatural being. Babe Hansen murdered. Monster's latest victim been in Egypt with Professor Banning. New reign of terror in Mapleton, Mass.
1: All right, so I guess they're they're putting some dots together. They're like, what do these murders have in common? Well, two of them were friends that did this thing. Now,
0: while John and Isabel are out on another one of their dates, like the very next day, they come across a shrub that has like a strip of fabric on it—the wrappings of the mummy, right? So he he grabs it immediately, takes it for forensic study. This is where that scientist, professor. Matthew Norman, you know, we're just going to call him our, our sort of forensic
1: scientist here. He unloads, like, all of the Egyptian knowledge. Dude, amazing where this guy just pulls it out of nowhere. He's like, oh, yeah, this linen was cast 3,000 years ago. And, oh, like, look at this. There's hieroglyphics and in ink and stuff. And it's like, he even uses the term the living dead. I'm like, what is going on with this guy? What What Van Helsing complex does he have? Like, where did he come from? So the next scene,
0: after we get all of that important, you know, Egyptian information, that, like that information dump, a telegram arrives at the Banning house for John. Remember, this is the 1970s. We are still fighting World War II.
1: <laughs> We're still sending telegrams.
0: John gets a commission in the Army Medical Corps. He is to report within three days to Fort
1: Myers. So yeah, so now he's being drafted, I guess. Well, that's what I thought too. But he also says that like his commission came in. So I think he was actually, he applied for this job. Like, I think this is a promotion of some kind. Oh, yeah, you're you're probably right. Yeah. You know, because I thought he was drafted too, but I don't know. It just seemed odd to throw that in here out of nowhere. And I thought it would have said like, I thought it would have had maybe like uh, a more negative kind of connotation to it if he was drafted maybe
0: i mean i think the only reason that was put in there at all is because of what was happening in the world at the time you know they wanted to touch on world war ii and the music that swells as he reads the the telegram like definitely would indicate that to me But, like, there's really no reason for it narratively, right? Because the the second that scene is over, he's out on another walk with Isabel. And he's like, we have only a couple days. I have, you know, I have three days. Let's get married. And so now we're cramming in a wedding.
1: Yeah, I think you just answered your own question maybe there. Like, I was thinking about, like, the only reason that he gets this letter is to give him three days to get married or not. Like, we have to hurry up and get married because I'm shipping off in three days and there's nothing like we have to solve this crime in three days before i have to ship off but it's like seriously just in service of like the love story kind of thing to me that's what i was seeing it as
0: yeah i i guess and the thing about all of these scenes with john and isabel if you would just watch these out of context it's like nobody's just died
1: oh yeah 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 it's not like his aunt died his dad or his dad's best friend we're not holding any funerals like we're never going to the graveyard to bury anybody and accidentally come across the new high priest just kind of hanging out there and like questioning him or
0: anything yeah now Mohammed Bey knows that the clock is ticking if he is to get his hands on isabel and and make her his wife he's gonna have to act quickly now Again, we've not heard any rules about the mummy and and him having to marry her before she gets married to John, right? But for whatever reason, he decides to kick things into high gear. And uh, instead of killing somebody that night, the plan is to abduct Isabel. So, that is what he does. He resurrects Caris for yet another mission, sends him to the Banning house, and uh, he's going to bring Isabel back to him. He's going to, I guess, essentially make her his wife. Kind of like what Ardith Bay was doing in the original Mummy movie. I don't get the sense that he's trying to make her, like a goddess, you know?
1: Well, as much as I don't like the turn that this takes with the kidnapping and and the lusting after her and all that kind of thing, like, in a weird way, part of it makes sense because he's like, the idea was to make sure that there are no more Bannings being born. So, original plan, kill everybody involved. New plan, if she can't give birth to one of his kids, then the curse will end. So what he wants to do is make her immortal and his proposal is be immortal with me, and we can control this mummy forever, and like do whatever we want. Is that kind of what's what what's going on here?
0: I mean, that would make sense because that's very similar to what George Zucko was trying to do at the end of the Mummy's Hand, if you recall. So I think they're just they're just recycling that plot thread a little bit.
1: I can't really think of any other twist or turn to throw in here. Like I said earlier, the thing to do now would have the mummy turn against him for disobeying the plan and like, you know, altering the plan and not doing what they set out to do. Then the mummy's gonna unleashed and he's like not bound ba- and you know, maybe he drinks his own Tana Leaf and stuff so like that that would have been where to take it
0: so yeah this is the moment where Karis, when he's ordered to go kidnap Isabel like almost resists but he eventually uh, submits and heads out into the night to grab her those neighbors towards the beginning of the movie that when, when Karis walked past their window they see him again Or hear him, right? As he walks by, he spooks a horse and wakes them up again, which is kind of funny to see them again. Then pretty effortlessly, he makes his way into the house. He climbs up the old side and makes out with her through the second floor window. And that's when the town, Mike, they are incensed. I guess the housekeeper witnessed Karras taking uh, Isabel through the window. So they ha- they do have a witness in this case. So now we have like an angry mob loitering outside of the Banning house. The sheriff is like rallying the troops. And I love this because it's become such a cliche. Like I, I think I made a joke in a fr- during a Frankenstein episode where it's almost like they have a shop where you can buy torches and pitchforks. And here the sheriff is like, grab a club, grab a torch. You know, like he's just got them all to supply to the crowd.
1: Dan I love this scene because I think of what you're saying like it's such a cliche and it feels like one of the few scenes where like it has that energy I was expecting of almost like farcical in a way like kind of like recognizing this is done all the time but they still kind of play it out and it has its own vibe to it like it's so refreshing okay first of all again so many people Okay, just a huge, like, folks, like, you do not understand, like, a huge mob of men standing in front of this house, okay? And then the guy stands up and is like, okay, here's the deal. There's a 3,000-year-old mummy on the loose, all right? (laughs) (laughs) like This guy here violated a tomb in Egypt. This girl here was kidnapped. All right, man, pass out the torches and the clubs. I was like, what? Pass out the torches? (laughs) And then they cut back and everybody's got a torch in their hand. I'm like, you guys ready to go? I'm like, we're ready to go. I was in heaven. I was like, this is so great. This is what I wish the whole movie was, was, was like this type of stuff, you know? Or, or like if there was a scene with Babe acknowledging that like he used to be so much fun and filled with joy, but something right, happened right. to him that like now he's this joyless old man. He's not like bitter or anything, but like you just get the sense that like he's depressed or something. Like maybe the only person that recognized that like his best friend just died. Right? This is what I wanted the whole movie. We're straight
0: up in uh, in evil dies tonight mode. You know, like (laughs) I wish somebody had said that, you know, evil dies tonight. But we do get we do get this older man. Okay, so the important thing about this scene ultimately is this guy who, upon hearing that there's like a mummy, reveals that he was recently chatting with the caretaker at the local cemetery. And I guess I think he was looking for a plot for himself and, and, and or his wife. And he said the caretaker was talking a lot about Egypt and reciting passages from his Egyptian Bible and hey maybe he knows something about what's going on and so that's when the incensed angry mob marched their way directly to the cemetery for the pre-climax of this movie
1: yeah, we sort of start cutting back between the high priest and the mummy, like strapping Isabel down, and then cutting back to the mob getting closer and bigger and closer, and then cutting back to like the cemetery of the mummy and him doing a ceremony, and then cutting back to like footage from Frankenstein. <laughs> it's so charming. At this point, like I'm so down for this climax. Like something came over me where I was like, Man, that's just kind of I don't want to use the word adorable because I feel like that might be a little diminishing or whatever, but like sure. there's just something so charming about this sequel this part of the mob like i loved
0: it yeah it's so familiar like it's it's like putting on an old sweater this is the stuff you know the stuff you like i will say that i do think that they cut together the borrowed footage from frankenstein pretty well if you know it's there you can tell but if you're not really paying that close attention maybe it's a little more seamless but i do think that like if you're going to borrow footage from frankenstein like this is the way to do it it's b-roll mob footage
1: right it's the only footage you could really borrow and uh fit anywhere, <laughs> anywhere yes. you need to it was great though i'm not sure if it's now or a little bit later but like one of the only pieces set pieces that they have they seem to use over and over is that one rickety bridge you know yes. like you see the mob and the mummy crossing that bridge a lot in this movie like they're shooting it from both angles all sides So, you know, it needed a little extra padding. Production value.
0: And so you're right. The movie cuts back and forth between the angry mob and what's going on at the cemetery. Mohammed Bey has basically tied Isabel down and is intending to marry her and make her a high priest of Karnak as he kills the rest of the the Banning family uh, for desecrating the tomb of one of their um, princesses. And she does not much more than than faint on the spot, unfortunately. And then as everybody reaches the cemetery, Mehmet Bey orders Karis to take Isabel to a safe location while he deals with these fools, heads out through like a back door and confronts the mob, armed with a a small pistol. At first, he kind of starts to play dumb a little bit, but then like once the cards are all on the table, he reveals that his father committed like the ultimate disrespect you know like the ultimate sin and that he and the entire banning family will have to pay for that and as he pulls out his little pistol to shoot john in the chest there's a gun goes off and it's revealed the sheriff kills muhammad bay a little predictable. I think I said before I would have liked to have seen the mummy turn on him instead.
1: Yeah, the mummy turning on him. Number one, number two, some kind of rumble or fist fight or something. Something. Like. I did. I didn't think he was just gonna walk out there strapped with a gun and like propose to shoot him point blank. Like he walks out right in front of him, surrounded by everybody when he's talking to him, and then and he like pulls out that gun. Uh, I was a little surprised about all that, and I was I was very surprised that they pan over and it was the sheriff if it'd be just because throughout the movie like they're always waking him up he's in bed like he's really not concerned like i just didn't get this sense that he was ever sort of fully on board with all of this to begin with but hey it's a very awkwardly staged little sequence <laughs> I yeah
0: I, I would have preferred something where there's like some sort of physical altercation or something but like this is so neat no one even gets their hair mussed. he's dead and, and then we just move it on
1: moving on to the house of fire
0: We're shambling to our fiery conclusion here. Karis makes his way back to the Banning House. I'm not entirely clear why that's where he was headed.
1: Yeah, he was just told to hide her. Yes, he took her back home. He doesn't know very many places in America yet.
0: So he takes her back to the Banning House. The mob arrives and proceeds to torch the whole place, which that seems like an overreaction. So we get the big like fiery set piece, the house I talked about. Like if you watch the scene again, it's cool to see the fire erupt from, you can tell that it's from like predetermined places. It's not entirely organic. We get a great stunt you referred to earlier.
1: Yeah, falling down the flaming stairs with a torch in his hand. Dan my nerves man like i couldn't this house reminded me of like in spider-man where he goes into the burning building and fights the green goblin like i was just it was very nerve wracking to watch all this stuff and how close they came to the fire and they're just throwing torches on that deck they're just like throwing fire all over the place i was like wow the safety protocols were so different
0: when I, yeah, when I watched John fall down the stairs, I'm sure it was a stunt actor, but like I saw his head come very close. It was like on top of that torch.
1: Oh, there's no way he didn't burn his hand. There's no way there's no he way. didn't burn his hand on that fall.
0: I had to rewind it and watch it again
1: because I had never noticed that before. I couldn't believe it. Like, I still can't believe it. I still can't. I mean, it looks insane. It looks unbelievable. But like, there it is. It's all real. If you want to see what real fiery house looks like and and just maniacs running around it for our entertainment.
0: Yeah. As soon as I saw it, I rewound it and watched it again. I pointed out to my girlfriend. I was like, watch this stunt. Look at this guy's head. He's going to (laughs) fall almost on top of that torch. It's insane. I was like, and I was like, that's not even the, the wildest stunt we've recovered on this show. I still think the dive into that little pond at the end of The Invisible Woman is like the most nerve wracking stunt we've seen. But like this dude almost like burned his face off.
1: And who knows who else? Like what, what could Mon Chaney see in that get up? You know, like he's not, it's not like he's not in that room that's half on fire as well. Right. or the Or that porch, like at the end. There
0: are a couple of shots where it's clear that the head, the mummy head is like a like a dummy, you know, it's a prop head. But for the most part, you're right, Lon Chaney is acting his way through these fiery sets and doing a great job as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you survived this shoot, you did a great job as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I just always forget the thrill that comes with just the inherent danger that they were open to performing under. Well, making movies back in the back in the early days, like we're still sort of in the early days. I don't know. I still consider the 40s the early days for some reason. But yeah, it's still the Wild West out there.
0: Yeah, we're still heavily in, in old Hollywood territory. So um, we get a fiery climax, like I mentioned. John grabs Isabel and they descend down the side of the house. The sheriff manages to distract the mummy long enough to isolate him on the the second floor of this building. Uh, Again, I don't really understand why they set this guy's house on fire
1: to kill the mummy. Dude, that is the funniest thing, Dan, is they're just like, set his house on fire. And John is, it's not like John is like, no, it's my house. Don't set my house on fire. What are you doing? I'll bring him out. We'll just set him on fire. The ultimate, like, overreaction, but a
0: hell of a climax. Uh, and then we get our third newspaper montage. Reign of terror ends in flames. Mapleton's murder monster meets doom. John Banning's fiance escapes horrible fate. Mapleton monster, in quotes, dies in flames. John Banning weds Isabel Evans culminating long courtship. Romance scores triumph over terror reign. Happy sequel to Mapleton tragedies. And then, of course, there's that beautiful photo of them on the front page. And then, you know, so considering how nasty this movie is up to this point, we get yet another, like, ultra happy ending where two characters are getting married.
1: Hey, man, happy ending. You know, it's part of a fairy tale, I guess, but... What I can't believe bothered me is like, oh, like, this is so cool. Like, they started this movie in a weird way by, like, zooming in on a... On like an article in a magazine, and that came to life. And this is going to end on a wedding announcement. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of going to bookend. But they have to ruin it. They have to do this very confusing, like, sort of end scene here, where like there's this terrible ADR with her saying like, "Oh, I'm so glad no one caught us like sneaking away from our wedding." And it's Isabel and John at the train station trying to like sneak away on their honeymoon. But then, like, two seconds later, the entire wedding party shows up at like the yeah. train station to say goodbye. I was so confused. I was like, what is happening? It's the most ridiculous ending. I just end on the on the freaking newspaper montage. It was a perfect motif.
0: It's been a while since I've seen The Mummy's Ghost. I know it does continue the Karras story, but I think this is the end of the banning sort of thread of that. I, I'm sure they had not necessarily planned when they made this to make a, another. Carus movie but i kind of wish they had had that in mind so that they could end this one on a sort of somber note you know kind of like a, an empire strikes back kind of thing where you know that middle movie is the downer movie and then they can have like a triumphant third act but i, I don't believe they do i mean we'll get there eventually but
1: Ever since the beginning, it almost seems like they've never really planned ahead. Because I feel like we would have gotten a shot at the end of one of these movies of a hand coming out of the ground right before the credits. You know, like whether it be The Mummy or The Frankenstein or somebody. Like, I'm shocked we have not seen like that at the end of a movie yet. Yeah, no, I I agree.
0: I would have loved to have seen something like that. But they just weren't thinking about the next one at that point, you know. Uh, And actually, you know what? I think... Hang on a second. I'm sorry. Let me back up a second. I think we've got. We have two more Karis movies. I misspoke. We have two more. But yeah, I would. I think I would have liked considering the tone of the movie up to this point or at least you know just the mean spiritedness of it would have liked to have seen a more downer ending but again where it's it's 1942 i I have to keep reminding myself the world was at war and that audiences wanted to see happy endings we're just not going to get that sort of complex downer ending at this time
1: yeah and it's in keeping with the again like i guess You know, speaking of motifs, it's one of the motifs of the film where like something horrible happens and you celebrate by doing something cheerful. Right. So like they just destroyed this guy's house and and the fire and everybody's dead. But like, hey, let's get married and go to Washington, totally in league with their personality. So I wouldn't really at this point want it any other way. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I think that's yeah. I mean, that's the end of the movie. I think it's a good place to wrap up. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, as much as this movie has, like, a lot of problems, it also has some good things going for it. I wouldn't write it off completely, you know? Like, um, yeah. I'm not entirely happy with it. Like, it's very short, and there's a lot of reused footage. So, so it's like an episode of the Mummy TV show or something. It feels right. almost like that. It feels like a Twilight Zone at times, which is cool. And that's what I do like about it is like there are moments here that I think are genuinely good, cool ideas that are executed well. There's just more that aren't. And that's the main issue here. But definitely the character of Babe loved what they did with that love this whole like body count love the idea of just like indiscriminately just like taking out anybody you know what i'm saying like the mummy doesn't care about your age or anything like it's weird how how many like elderly people like bite it in this movie like i wonder if that's saying something too about young people taking over society and stuff fears of that creeping in post well maybe that's more post-war but i was just genuinely surprised on many levels it was nothing like i was expecting it to be for better or worse.
0: I mean, I agree with you for sure that there's a lot of really cool stuff. And and I wish, I almost wish, like, this might be a rare instance here where I want, like, another 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Not to keep everything and make room for it, but to, like, take the good stuff and expand on that. Because I think that there are some cool ideas in here and there's definitely a good movie in here. But not everything is necessary. So take out some things, expand on the good stuff, you know, bulk it up another 20 minutes. And I think you got a really solid and, and maybe scary mummy movie. But as it is, it's just so overloaded with ideas. And there's just not enough time to expand on any of it in, in a way that makes any of it matter. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's one of those movies that I think benefits from spending time thinking about this stuff. You know, the more I t- think about it, the more I talk about it, the more I do enjoy it. But, you know, at the end of the day, it tries to take on too much and it ends up falling on its ass And I'm not sure if it's going to be my bottom-ranked one or if I'm going to put it above The Invisible Woman. I'm not sure yet. But it's an okay Mummy movie, and I think if you're watching the Karis movies, it's not bad to watch if you're just running the franchise.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess on a final note, what I was expecting that I still want is... The mummy in the city, okay? Like, mummy loose in New York, that kind of stuff. Not night at the museum, but, but like, you know, uh, mummy in the city. And then what I would also thought would have been cool this time around is if the mummy was the Princess Sanaka. Like, if it was a woman mummy kind of situation thing and wasn't controlled by anybody necessarily. But, like, I I would like to see that, too, in the future as well. Like, I know we might not get a universal style, but, you know, I'm just saying down the line someday that would be kind of nice to see, too.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, assuming we get that far, we will get to the most recent mummy, which had a a female mummy. Oh, yeah, yeah. As far as I know, I I mean, I can't think of any other female mummy movies, but um, I hope we can find some more. With that, I think it's time for us to head back down to our tomb. But we will be back on Friday, February 25th for our first ever monster mashup as Bela Lugosi squares off against Lon Chaney Jr. That's right. We're going to be talking about Frankenstein meets The Wolfman.
1: Awesome. So looking forward to this.
0: Get the popcorn ready, and maybe we'll get a little little bell to ring before they... uh... Before they square off, it's the universal
1: monsters multiverse of madness is about to begin.
0: <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at monstermadepod on Instagram and Facebook at the monsters that made us, and you can email us at the that made us at gmail.com.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at
0: dan Colon. Mike, where can listeners find
1: you? You can follow me on Twitter at at the underscore mikester, and then you can hear all the other shows I'm on at cageclub.me, facebook.com/cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram
0: if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter you can do so at patreon.com the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes and we can't forget about our t-shirts on tpublic you can find the link for those in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody